All right. Hello, Story Fam. How are we doing? Good. You look good. You look uh, rested. A little light, a little light today in the, in the crowd numbers. Uh, I think that's because of Garth Brooks. I chalked, chalked that up to Garth being in town last night. Some of our community has friends in low places, if you know what I mean. So you guys clearly have your act together. Thank you for being here today. And uh, thank you uh, to our Timber Grove campus as well for gathering over in the Heights. We love you, and uh, thank you for being a part of the story today, as well as those who are joining us online. Um, if we don't know each other yet, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. Um, this is our new slash temporary home headquarters here in the museum district, and we are thrilled uh, to have been here now for six, going on seven months now. So it's, uh, it's been an incredible ride. And, uh, and today we get to, to talk about something that's, I think, more important than, uh, more important than most let's say, topics and messages you might hear uh, preachers talk about, because this cuts to the quick. It like, it like hits a question that's on everyone's hearts, regardless of if you're a Christian or if you're a skeptic or if you're an atheist, like everybody wants to know what it's going to take if heaven is real to get in. Like what's the ticket price? Like if we all die. We're all going to die. You're aware of that, right? Sure, that's lovely to hear on a Sunday morning, right before brunch. <laughs> You're all going to die. Okay, we're all going to die. And, uh, you know, it's possible, Christians believe, there's something waiting for us on the other side of death. And, and if we all find ourselves after death, like standing in some line outside of the pearly gates, like wrapping around the corner of the block like at an Astros World Series game or something, like if we're all waiting, we're all going to be wondering the same thing. What is it that's going to get me in? And a lot of people boil it down to this notion that there's going to be um, a test, a final exam, if you will. I hear this kind of thinking a lot. A lot of Christians look at it this way, like you're going to get there and you're going to need to be ready for some kind of a test on your judgment day, all right? Uh, and if that's the case, then it would be really helpful for us to know what kind of test we're talking about. Because if you've ever been to school, you know that not all tests are the same. <laughs> like, there's some tests where all you need are the right answers. And that's my kind of test. But there's other tests where you have to show your work. And anytime your teacher told, I heard the groan in the room. That was my reaction. Anytime a teacher said, show your work, you knew you were in trouble. I knew I was in trouble, especially in my math-related classes. I was always a pretty good student. I could get by. But, man, those math classes tore me up. Now, if I had a teacher who was in a good mood or a certain kind of teacher that just gave you these tests where all you needed were the right answers, I was golden because I had friends who were smarter than me. Corey Morgan had all the answers. And, and, and I stunk at, at math, and he was great at it. And we had a whole sophisticated scheme, sign-stealing, sharing scheme worked out where he would pass the answers to me. This scheme was, it would make like the 2017 Astros blush. Like I could, I could tell you, I'm, I'm not going to spill the beans, all right, but we worked it out. And in exchange, I would write Corey's papers for him because he stunk at writing papers. And so we, everybody won. It was a win-win, unless the teachers needed to see 
my work. Because as those math classes advanced, uh, and we got past like regular math into algebra, calculus, trigonometry, I started to get the sense that teachers wanted to see more and more of my work. And I started to get the sense that I was less and less capable of showing them anything that looked like the right work. And I remember distinctly being in high school, trying to pass off this idea to my teachers that I was some kind of a savant who could only do my work in my head. It's like, I see the numbers, I just don't know how to write them. Like, they never bought it. Trigonometry teacher did not buy that argument. Like, uh, she was on to me. And, and so if I had to show my work, I was in trouble. And the question is, if going to heaven and getting in means passing a test in which we have to show our work, like could any of us pass that test? Now, if going, getting into heaven just means you have, have, have to have all the right answers, all you need is a, like a Corey Morgan in your life or some kind of a scheme, or you just need to have the right things memorized and you're golden. But what if the work is required? Could any of us pass that test? I think we know. It's like me in trigonometry class. We'd be in trouble if that's the case. Um, so that kind of line of questioning is exactly the issue that James takes up in the, the letter called James that we're going to be talking about today. So this is going to be part two of a series on this sort of obscure New Testament book called James. It's a series called Less Talking, More Walking. All right, so um, this title perfectly sums up what James is getting at. Um, but I want to talk a little bit today about who James was and under what circumstances um, he was writing. Okay, so James was actually not a book, but a letter. 2,300 words, which is about the length of a Pastor Eric sermon. So um, I'm not joking. It's like, that's like uh, so if I were to stand here and read James's letter verbatim, it'd probably take about as long as, uh, as a sermon, depending on how worked up I get and how fast I talk. But, but James was not a, a very long book of, of the Bible, all right? So what makes, one thing that makes James unique or special is that uh, he wasn't just like an apostle or a follower of Jesus. He was actually related to Jesus. He was Jesus's brother. Or if you're a Christian, then you would say he was his half-brother. Uh, different daddies, same mommy. Anyway, you get me right? Okay, so uh, anyway, okay, so, so James was one of Jesus's younger siblings. The New Testament, on multiple occasions, the New Testament lists four of his brothers out by name. So James was the next oldest because he was listed first. James, and then, um, and then there was Joseph Jr., and then there was Simon, and then there was uh, Jude, who also wrote a book in the New Testament, whose real name was Judas, but for some reason, I don't really get it. He didn't want to be called Judas. I don't really know what's up with that, but he shortened it to Jude. So, <laughs> so that, was, that was the list. And then he had a bunch of, they had a bunch of uh, unnamed sisters. And here's the... Here's the really interesting thing. These brothers and sisters of Jesus wanted nothing to do with him during his life on earth, during his ministry. In fact, they wanted to shut him up. They wanted to stop him. He was embarrassing to them. He was bringing shame on their family name as he was walking from town to town doing all these miracles and, you know, like a, almost like a circus act. And people were, were, were following him around. But, but his brothers were like, dude, just go back to work. Earn a living. Like, dad's dead. We got to support mom and the sisters. Like, let's just live, you know? And, and so they tried to stifle him. And, and their resentment toward Jesus, 
their big brother, went so deep, y'all, that they didn't even show up the day that Jesus was executed. Like his own brothers and sisters weren't there to support him on the day that he died. His mother was there. But the only disciple that came was John that we know of. And Jesus was like, John, take care of mama because apparently my brothers aren't around. So Mary, be like a mother to John. John, be like a, be like a son to Mary. Like this, this, this kind of bleak moment when you realize how abandoned Jesus was. And in some ways, Mary was, because at least they should have gone to support their mama, right? But that's how deep their resentment ran. That's what you need to know about James and Jude and Joe Jr. and Simon, all right? But something dramatic and instant happened in the moments and days following Jesus' death on a cross. And the book of Acts gives us a little clue, a little bit of insight into what it was exactly that happened. Because in Acts chapter 1, the very beginning of the book of Acts, um, the, the, the author of Acts, who's Luke, uh, was telling us just who was still around, who was still following Jesus even after he died and started appearing in resurrected form, right? So, so this, is what, this is what Acts chapter 1, verse 14 says. The apostles of Jesus all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women who had been following Jesus, the ones that went to the tomb and all of that on Easter morning, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Isn't that interesting? His brothers, in Acts chapter 1, in days, the days following the crucifixion, what they didn't show up for, um, after ignoring him for years, trying to arrest him and take him away, shut him up, his brothers are now not only gathering to console their mother, they're worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping their big brother. They're accepting big brother as Lord and Savior. Now, I know Dylan asked you all this in his message last week when I was gone. Dylan asked you, what would it take for you to accept your brother as your personal Lord and Savior, right? Like that, that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough gap to bridge, you know? Is there, is there anything in life more annoying than a sibling with a God complex, right? Like some of you know exactly how that feels, right? And this one is, just happens to be the only one that was, it wasn't a complex, it was legit, right? But, but still, I'm sure it kind of felt the same. So what was it that brought Jesus' brothers and sisters in to the point that they were now worshiping him and carrying his movement forward after he died a shameful death on a Roman cross? Paul gives us a little hint in his chronicles of the early days of Christianity. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 4 says, Jesus, after he died, appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, that's the apostles, and after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then Jesus appeared to James. There it is. And then to all the apostles again, all right? So, appeared to James. Hmm. So, James had what must have been, like, the most uncomfortable come-to-Jesus meeting in the history of humankind. Like, sorry about all that, you know, trying to shut you up, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> it's good to see you again. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that was like, but something about that, ex that, that experience immediately changed James, and James was so transformed that his transformation led to the transformation of the other brothers as well because they showed up and worshiped Jesus too. 
So Jesus sought James out for the purpose of bringing his family back, all right? So we can connect these dots um, pretty easily, all right? Now, what's really another thing that's interesting about James is, is it seems clear that um, after, just after uh, his transformation and, and conversion, let's say, he became the leader of the central church, the headquarters of the Christian movement in Jerusalem. He became the de facto leader. He was making all the big decisions. When controversies would arise, they would go to James to get an answer. All right? And that happened between, like, in the year 30, when Jesus died, through the 30s and into the 40s. Scholars generally believe James wrote his letter in the early 40s AD. Now, what's interesting about that is if he wrote his letter in, let's say, 42, 43, 44 AD, that would probably mean James is the oldest writings that we have in the New Testament. Like it was first. Paul didn't start writing until 47, 48 AD, probably. Um, you know, John didn't write until much later. The Gospels weren't uh, written, we don't think, until maybe 50s, 60s, 70s AD. Okay? So James wrote his letter before any of the other stuff in the New Testament existed, which might explain why sometimes when you, if you ever read James, you read it and you go, this doesn't this doesn't feel like the Bible. This doesn't feel like the rest of the New Testament. This feels different. Well, the reason is, probably, when James wrote James, he had nothing else to compare what he was writing to. He was the first. And maybe it wasn't James who was different. Maybe it was all the guys that wrote after James that were different, if it is indeed different or feels different in tone. All right? So James was a forerunner, and I think that's uh, telling and interesting. The more you get to know James, all right? So Dylan told us here at Museum District, Meredith told y'all at Timber Grove last Sunday, that there's some controversy around this little book in the New Testament. And in fact, some leaders like Martin Luther have wondered aloud if James should be in the canon, in the Bible. Martin Luther called it uh, an epistle of straw. Now, Martin Luther wasn't a perfect person. If you know anything about the man, he had some vices. It's not like he's God, like, like he... he He's welcome to say what he wants to say, but I just, I'm glad that James is in there. I'll tell you one reason why. Before I was a Christian, when I mostly despised the Bible, other than just being a set of like fables and, and feel-good kind of parable stories, nursery rhymes, that's what it was to me for a lot of my life, I loved the book of James because the book of James is very practical. There's no pretense. There's no religious Christianese. You know, Paul, for example, very tough to figure out if you're a skeptic. Like, what is this? It feels like, first of all, I'm just, I'm a little bored. It's confusing. I don't know what these words mean. Not with James. James, you're going to see in a minute, he just hits you right in the, in the teeth. And I enjoyed that even as a skeptic. Now, I still love the book of James to read it now. I, I don't love teaching it as much. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because with a passage like today's, the stakes are so high. Hear me when I tell you, if you go home today getting exactly what James is saying in this passage, you're going to go home getting the whole gospel. But if you, if you just check out for part of this message, which is likely because I do that to people, like if you just, or if I miscommunicate something, a little bit of something that James says, there's a chance you could go home missing the whole gospel. But there's a lot at stake today, especially with this part of James, which is the, the most controversial part of this most controversial letter 
in Scripture. So I'm going to stop procrastinating now and dive right in, okay? James chapter 2 is uh, where we're looking today, starting in verse 14. You've got Bibles there in front of you if you want to explore that. Have a Bible in your hand. I like that. Or a Bible app on your phone is fine, but... But Jesus is watching, so stay off of Instagram. And, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you can also just follow along on the, on the screen here, okay? So John, James chapter 2, verse 14. He starts out this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? What good is it, for example, if you get to the pearly gates and you've got the answers? but you have no work to show. What good is it? That's the, that's the question. It's a good question. And it's a question I've heard Christians and non-Christians alike ask. I have heard just about as many non-Christians ask this question about Christians, like what good is your faith if you're not doing any good with it? You know? Like all you do is go to church. Great. Why don't you try helping your neighbor? You know, it's like, like I hear non-Christians they're not wrong. Like, I hear them criticizing Christians for saying one thing and doing another. And that's kind of exactly what, what James is getting at here when he says, can such faith save them? Such faith is interesting because what he's talking about is faith that's not accompanied by works. But it's still faith, which is to say there's more than one kind of faith. So the big debate in Christian circles is, hey, hey, James, slow your roll, James. You were wrong about Jesus once. Don't do it again, James. Like, <laughs> slow your roll, bro. Because we're saved by grace through faith and not by works that man can boast. Y'all, we learned this back in vacation Bible school if you grew up in church. This is Christianity 101. So be careful, James. Don't start getting into that works righteousness business, like you, if, you're, if you're a church rat like me, you've heard this a thousand times, right? But James is simply saying, look, there's different kinds of faith, and can such faith without works save a person? And the clear implication here is no, according to James. It cannot save you. It will not get you into heaven to have all the answers, even if they're the right answers, and to have no work to show for them. That's what James is saying. And then he follows it up with a very relatable illustration. This, I love this because it, it's clear that James is cut from the same cloth as Jesus, because he sounds like Jesus with this illustration. Jesus is always offering these practical teachings. And in the next verse, James 2.15, uh, he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, all right? Somebody's naked or, or they don't have clothes that cover them or they're cold in the wintertime. Or uh, they're, they're hungry, they don't have daily food, all right? If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, platitude, platitude, platitude. Just go. The main thing is just go. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, I'm, I don't, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this situation because I don't want to give you anything, so I'll be praying for you, just go in peace, you know? <laughs> like, these kinds of things that we're prone to say, when we're challenged by an opportunity that may be uncomfortable, but it's an opportunity nonetheless to give, to serve, and to love sacrificially, all right? So he says, uh, but does, does nothing to help uh, to, about their physical needs. What good is it, okay? So he's specifically talking about fellow Christians because he says if your brother or sister. So he's talking about the Christian community. If someone in your church 
before or after a church, worship, Bible study, small group, whatever, they clearly have a physical need. And all you say is, God bless you. I'm sorry. I'll be praying for you. Go in peace. I hope someone takes care of you. And you do nothing to address the physical need that's apparent in front of you. James is saying that that is good for nothing. It's a hard teaching, right? Because especially in Texas, we like, we like to think it's every man for himself. We're all self-sufficient. We're all like on our own, bootstrapping it or whatever. James says, not so fast, okay? And the reason why, uh, there's two reasons, I think, why this stuff makes Christians so uncomfortable. And, uh, and, and, and you know, it's, the first is just this idea that, uh, well, let me get into that in just a second, but, but I, I think there's just a general sense of discomfort with this because it feels generally antithetical to the gospel. And it leaves us asking, like, where did James get this stuff from? Because this seems like he came up with it on his own. Where did he get this harebrained idea that you cannot have saving faith apart from works that demonstrate that faith? Where does it come from? Well, you don't have to look very far because he got it from his big brother slash Lord and Savior. Um, Matthew 25. If you would join me, uh, Matthew 25. This is starting in verse 31. This is what Jesus said is going to happen on that day when we're all standing in that line I talked about earlier. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All right? Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry physical need. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked for me. In prison, you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? We're needing clothes and clothe you. When do we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So is Jesus saying that works alone can save? No, I don't think that's the case because they know Jesus. It's not like they are strangers to Jesus here. They knew Jesus in life. And so they had a faithful, vibrant relationship with Jesus. But that alone is not enough either. Because Jesus said it was by clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and visiting the prisoner and healing the sick that you demonstrated your faithful relationship with me. And what's interesting is that the spirit of these people is so humble that they don't even remember their own good deeds. It's like, when did we do these good things? Because when you love like Jesus loves, you don't keep count. You don't keep score. You're not like pulling out a checklist at the pearly gates going, remember when I did that thing on that Tuesday? And it's like, yes. No, no, you're just like, whoa, wow, you're amazed. You're amazed by this sort of body of work that the Holy Spirit has, has manifested in you, all right? And then the other side of the story is, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we not help you? 
And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to the eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. And it's interesting, the spirit of these guys is totally the opposite. When have we not done the right thing? Do you hear it? When did we not help? When did we not do good? Like, the arrogance uh, and the entitlement in that is so apparent um, that it kind of sneaks up on us. Um, so what I want you to see here is James didn't come up with this idea on his own. He got it from Jesus. He's well in step with Jesus here, which is really all we can hope for, right? So he's not teaching heresy, all right? And so if that's the case, why are people struggling so much with James over the years? Two reasons. First is a, a selfish flesh reason, right? The second is a little more understandable. First, people struggle with James because this teaching is a threat. It's a challenge. We don't, we don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like being inconvenienced. If given the choice, every one of us would choose to be judged by God based on our beliefs and not our works because it is infinitely easier to believe the right things than it is to do the right things, right? Obviously, we would rather be judged in that way, okay? Now, now that, that doesn't make it right or doesn't make it so, but it's definitely the case. And I remember being challenged along these lines a few months ago myself in a very <laughs> somewhat um, embarrassing way, all right? So I'm going to share with you something that's uncomfortable to share, but you're used to it by now. <laughs> so, so seven months ago, six months ago, we were in transition. We were uh, coming from our old uh, location to this one. Um, we were very much in flux, and it was a difficult time for the story. But one good thing was we had somehow over the years preserved a perfect five-star rating on our Google Reviews page, which if you're familiar with Google reviews and churches, that's almost impossible to do in 2022. There are people who go from one church's Google page to another just to leave a negative review, even if they've never been there before, you know, just to mess with us. So somehow we avoided that five-star review. And then one day I checked it because once in a while, every hour or so I check. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, we were, we had, we had, we had fallen to a paltry 4.9. And I was like, what the heck happened? What could this be? Someone had left a two-star review. And not only did they leave us two stars, but they decided to take their sweet time and leave several paragraphs of reasons why, all right? And I'm going to share part of their review with all of you today, right now. I'm not going to share their name. It's not personal, anything like that. I don't know this person, okay? And I'm not familiar with the situation that they're talking about. However, I think it's important that we know this, okay? So, uh, they said, I wrote this review with confusion. I write this review with confusion, disappointment, and sadness in my heart. I've been going to the story for the past couple of months now, and everyone there is awesome. Good so far, all right? Friendly people, staff, great pastors. I couldn't agree more. So, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
<laughs> at both campuses and extremely welcoming. So why does it get two stars? Well, recently it's come to my attention that a fellow story goer has run into financial and life difficulties. And as a religious person myself, if a church says that they love you and care about you, they're more than likely willing to help, right? Of course, not straight out of the pocket, but at least uh, point you in the right direction of different uh, resources. He says recourses means resources, I believe. Right? Especially somewhere uh, where it's uh, all about bringing heavy questions to the table and showing you that God definitely is real. Well, not exactly. After multiple attempts of reaching out to staff, etc., how much uh, they actually don't care is quite apparent. With robotic replies and little no empathy, it's only super nice when they get help. My hope is that they actually learn from this. Treat your congregation better. Oof. That's stung. It hurt, still hurts. But pain wasn't even my first reaction. You know what my first reaction was? Anger. Like, bro, really? We had a 5.0 rate. <laughs> and you're going to come in here and just bomb us this way. And these reviews, they live forever, bro. It's like, really? I was, I was self-righteous. And I'm not proud of this. I was just mad. I was so mad that I, I caught myself rereading the review, looking for misplaced apostrophes and misspelled words because somehow it made me feel better <laughs> to, to realize that our critic online couldn't even spell. It was like that kind of self-righteousness and judginess, and I was kind of proving its point for him at that point. Um, but it did. It hurt my feelings, and, uh, and, and at first it was a very selfish reaction. And then I sat with it longer and, and, and realized the reason that it hit me so hard is because if this happened, and I have no reason to doubt that it is, in fact, I believe this happened, it's not just a, a, a one-off thing we can excuse so easily, is it? If these events took place that he described, it's an indictment. Like, I would have rather he go after my sermons I would rather he say the coffee was bad or the parking was hard or the music was whatever. Like that we can, we can manage and be okay with. But this, to use James's language, like what good is our faith if we're not taking care of each other? If we're not looking after each other's needs, what are we doing here? And so that's why James's teaching is so hard on us because it's threatening it's, uh, it's challenging, it's uncomfortable, all right? So uh, I think that's the first reason it's tempting to bristle at James. The second reason is a little, a little more in the weeds, but it has to do with Paul, the apostle who wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Now, because Paul's more famous than James, and he wrote 13 instead of just one, and because his letters are listed first, like in order in the New Testament, we have this idea that James came after Paul and is less important to Paul. And that James, when he writes, faith without works is dead, he's responding to or reacting against Paul, who in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, famously wrote that, uh, for it's by grace that we're saved, we've been saved, through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So James comes along after that, we think, and says, hey, faith without works is dead or whatever, and uh, we think that it's like an argument that they're having. And if, if, that, if that's how it shook out, then yeah, we have a little bit of a controversy on our hands, because who's right? But that's not what happened. James wrote way before Paul, 
and is arguing in a very different way. Paul's argument in context was pitting um, you know, pure faith against religious self-righteousness, faith versus works righteousness. James isn't pitting faith against works, is he? Every time he mentions works, it's in the context of faith. So James is saying it's not, it's not works versus faith. It's living faith versus dead faith. And there's different kinds of faith. And you can be a person of faith and be dead. You can have faith and, and it not matter. But there's also something as a living faith that James is opening our eyes to here. He says it in verse uh, 17 uh, through 19. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But if someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. Everybody go, ooh, <laughs> that is a mic drop. That's 240 characters almost exactly. James would be insane on Twitter, I'm telling you. Like, <laughs> until he was canceled, right? <laughs> it would be totally just incredible follow, right? So, so what is James saying? He's warning you and me about the dangers of dead faith. He's saying don't let good theology and right belief become your life's aim. Because you know who else has the best theology? Demons. You know who believes there is one true God? Satan. And if that's your only aim in coming to church and being a Christian is all that, having the right beliefs, so you got the right answers at that heavenly test, you're in the worst possible company. So there's more He's saying there's more. And both James and Jesus warned about this kind of dead faith that is, in Jesus' words, like a fruit tree that's not bearing fruit. He said, what is, good, uh, what is good about a tree that's supposed to bear fruit, that's designed to bear fruit, that was planted to bear fruit, no longer bears fruit? It still looks like a tree. You might still call it a tree. It might think it's a tree, but it's not good for anything but the fire. That's Jesus' warning about dead faith. And so, so people who believe in God are called to do more than just believe in God. We're called to dwell in him like a vine, like a branch to the vine. Dwell in him until we blossom what he's growing in us. To dwell in him richly until we bear the fruit of the tree we're called to be. And Paul gives us examples of what that fruit actually looks like when you're rooted in the Holy Spirit of God. This stuff naturally grows out of you. Your life looks more like love. The fruit looks more like joy. Your life bears more peace and patience and goodness and, and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. There are real-life, real-world implications to a living faith which is good news. It's the best news. And if you're a skeptic about religion because all you see from religious people is the right answers and none of the work, Jesus is right there with you. James is right there with you. The word of God is right there with you. 
And I want you to know today that real, living, vibrant faith in Jesus brings about real life transformation here and now. You cannot authentically root yourself in Jesus and continue to be rough with your language with your wife or your husband. You cannot continue to parent the same way that you did before without that love blossoming and, 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 and fruit of the Spirit coming up from within you. You will be transformed. You will be changed in the day-to-day -day life. Your heart will be moved when someone is in need in front of you. And it's not because you're afraid of going to hell if you don't do the right thing. It's because you should have gone to hell. But by the grace of God, you've been plucked from the fire, replanted in fertile soil to grow good fruit again. By his grace and his grace alone, how could you not produce good fruit? Given what he has done for you, how could we not, rooted in him, grow this fruit of his spirit? It's only natural to us now. It's not requisite for like passing a test. It's not like, it's not how we look at it. It's not so God will see our good works and think we're good enough for heaven. It's because God saw how wretched we are and he still claims us for heaven. How could we not respond to such a God of such grace with the kind of faith that is alive, that is, that is growing the fruit of his spirit? How could we not, all right? So every opportunity that God gives you to serve someone in need, isn't it? Isn't a heaven or hell test? It's not about this is your moment to decide whether you're going to be saved or not. It's about realizing you're already saved, and because that reality is true, how could you not serve and show the world around you, especially this one in need in front of you, what it looks like to, to know the truth of God? It's a blessing to be confronted with someone's need. And so I stand in repentance of the times that I've not responded to those in need, that I've, out of convenience or my own comfort, I've shirked that responsibility, and it's to my own detriment, not just those in need, that I've done that. And the same for all of us. And Mr. Two-Star, if you're here today or watching online, Mr. Two-Star, if you're still with us, God bless you. And if you know who Mr. Two-Star was, you can put us in touch. I'd like to shake his hand. Um, I promise not to be too rough. <laughs> I'm not mad anymore. Um, but just because I, I shared that word from him for a reason, because it should make us a better church. It should make us more aware of what we're really here to do who we're really here to be. And I'm grateful for that kind of accountability, as uncomfortable as it made me, as much as I would like to see 5.0 again instead of 4.9, Mr. Two-Star. I love you. I love you for holding us to account. Because what good are we? What good is our faith if we're not walking our talk and living our doctrine? Instead of just believing, preaching, attending, no. No, I pray that we'll be a church that puts to work the faith that Christ and his spirit have planted in us. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, first, we just want to repent of, uh, of any and all of the times that you've put someone in front of us, uh, a brother or a sister, 
in front of us who's clearly broken or clearly in need in a moment, uh, and we have uh, not responded, or we've responded with platitudes, more religion, empty faith. Lord, forgive us. Set us on a path toward righteousness, Father. We want to love those around us like you've loved us already, not selfishly and by counting the cost, but sacrificially. We want to love people for their sake, not just for ours. Lord, that's how you show us to love one another. God, thank you for your servant, James, who gives us this difficult but important, critical teaching. Help us to see, Father, that it is by grace through faith in Christ that we're saved. But once saved, Lord, how could we not root ourselves in the fertile soil of your spirit and bear fruit that speaks your name? Lord, bless us to be a blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.